We're going to be in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, finishing up our series in the fruit of the Spirit this morning. And so, if you have a Bible, I invite you to go to Galatians 5. If you've been with us this summer, we've been uh, walking through these, this list of character traits that are used to describe what it looks like when the character of Christ becomes visible in the personalities of his people. And so um, we've been walking, there's nine fruits listed, and uh, we've been walking through one each week, and this morning we get to the last one. So I'm speaking on self-control, which feels a little bit like Donald Trump speaking on humility, but uh, we're going to give it a shot. So Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16, we'll read this entire text one last time. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want, but If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Will you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for this morning, for this day that you have made, for the chance to be part of your family, to be gathered here together as your sons and as your daughters, as those who are invited to join you on your mission in this world to make all things new. And so we pray that that would begin here and now with us. That the renewing power of your spirit would come upon us. That you would continue the good work that you've started in us, forming the image and likeness of your son Jesus in this community. So that the way that we live together would be a display of who you are and what you're like to the world around us. So we need you this morning thankful for your presence and your power to make all things new, including us. We trust you at this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so, in this section of the book of Galatians, Paul is describing what it looks like to live as a spirit-filled community of Christ followers. And his assumption is that if there is a community, a group of people that are claiming 
that they are inhabited by God the Holy Spirit, Paul's assumption is that that community of people is going to look radically different than those who aren't. It's a logical assumption, right? If the Spirit of God lives in us, then he's assuming there's going to be something noticeably different about the way we live compared to the world around us. And so in this chunk, starting in verse 16, Paul uses a metaphor, really, of a battlefield. And he talks about the inner life of the disciple of Jesus as something that is marked by conflict. So this morning, we're going to follow his, his thinking throughout this text as it relates to what's going on in the inner life of a, a community of disciples of Jesus. And he uses the metaphor of a battlefield, okay? And he talks about how there's sort of this war going on within those who would profess Christ all the time. And there's these two opposing forces or sets of motives that are in constant conflict with each other. And he calls them the flesh and the spirit. Now, for many of us, when we hear the word flesh, we assume that the Bible's talking about the physical nature. And some of us have this idea that Christianity says that the physical is bad, that the spiritual is good. That's not actually what the Bible teaches at all. Christianity has always placed a very high value on the physical world, our physical bodies, the physical creation. So when Paul uses the word flesh, he's not talking about just our bodies. He's talking about something else entirely. He's actually talking about our sinful nature, or that bent within every human heart toward a life of rebellion towards God. Paul's saying that there's something within us as fallen humans that is constantly pulling our attention and our affection away from God. And it's the part of our nature that we're all too familiar with, that part of our nature that kind of is prone to distrust God, prone to reject him, to distance ourselves from him, to be ignorant of him. It's that thing that when God told Adam and Eve that you are free to eat of any tree in the garden except for that one, they're going, let's go eat of that one. That's the flesh, right? And so it's important to see that when Paul talks in this passage about a person who has this inner conflict, he's not describing a non-Christian. He's talking to a community of believers. And he's saying that this war, this conflict between the flesh and the spirit is something that as followers of Jesus, we will be contending with for the rest of our time here on earth. The theologian J.C. Ryle says it this way, A true true Christian is known not just for his inner peace, but also for his inner warfare. We don't hear people talk like that very often. Well, at Antioch we do, right? Ken does. But in terms of a lot of the Christianity that some of us are familiar with or have grown up with, there's this version of Christianity that just come to Jesus and everything's going to be easy. And it'll be a life of peace and a life of, you know, euphoric kind of just spirituality or something. 
And Paul and other writers in the Bible are very honest that to come to Christ and to be included in him, to follow Jesus as a way of life, yes, there is a sense of peace or right relationship, right being. But there also is this sense of conflict that we're going to have to contend with. And so I'll just pause for a moment and speak to those of you who are struggling in your faith. Those of you that are feeling conflicted as it relates to your walk with God, your understanding of God. For those that have, maybe it's intellectual dilemmas or personal struggles and you're wondering why life has gone the way it's gone if God is who he says he is. Or maybe your, your faith just feels fake. It feels cheap, like you feel like you're constantly just pretending to follow Jesus. What I want to say to you is that if this is true, that if the flesh and the spirit are in conflict with one another and that's a mark of the Christian life, then the presence of struggle, the presence of doubt, the presence of these feelings of emptiness or fakeness or distance from God, if this conflict is true, then none of that actually means what you think it means. The fact that you feel far from God or spiritually empty or that you're struggling with doubts or questions or dilemmas is most likely actually evidence that God is way closer than you think. It actually is a sign that you are caught up in the middle of this conflict that you're supposed to be caught up in the middle of. Right? If you're not wrestling in terms of your faith, if you're not struggling with questions and the, the sense that God isn't as close as you'd like, uh, chances are uh, that, that you're, you're, you haven't actually taken a side in this conflict yet, right? And so you could think about it like the sixth sense, if you ever saw that. It's rated R, so as a pastor, I've never seen it, but I've heard about it. <laughs> <laughs> Dead people don't know they're dead, right? So if you feel dead, that means that you're not. (laughs) And so what Paul's saying is those feelings of struggle, those feelings of conflict, those feelings that faith is a battle, he's going, that's the sign that you're actually where you're supposed to be. That feeling that God's further than you'd like him to be, that's a sign that God's actually nearer than you think, right? Because dead hearts don't know they're dead. So you're actually growing. You're being stretched. You're being matured in your faith. And it's not always fun. But the Bible says that that's to be expected. This inner conflict between flesh and spirit is part of the normative Christian life. Okay? So I have a good friend who came to faith in Christ later in his life, in his, in his late 40s, had spent uh, his entire life as an atheist. And uh, as he came to know Jesus and began to reorient his life as a disciple of Jesus, one of the things he explains is that in some ways, life has gotten better 
since he started following Jesus, right? He has this sense of purpose and belonging and identity that he never had before. But in other ways, life's gotten way more complicated and way more difficult. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Like before he was committed to following Jesus, when it came to decision-making, there was really only one question. What do I want to do? Right? And you can use whatever grid you want to to make those decisions. What's the most comfortable? What's the most acceptable culturally or traditionally? What's going to be most advantageous for me in business or finance or whatever it is? What do I want to do? And he goes, now that I'm following Jesus, I have to ask the question, what does Jesus want me to do? And what do you do when those two things seem to be at odds with each other? Okay, so... Paul is talking really honestly in a way that's super comforting to me, and I hope it is to you. That if you experience those conflicts between flesh and spirit, he's saying that's how this is supposed to work. The flesh is always looming. And Paul says that we never actually fully shed our flesh. We don't have to be defined by it or controlled by it, but it will always be there. But, he says, we've also been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That God himself has come to us, and he lives in us, and he guides us, and he empowers us for the life that he's called us to. And so that now is our new identity. And that now becomes the reality that guides and shapes how we live, both in terms of big picture decisions and the day to day, that we are God's children indwelt by his Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who dwelled in and empowered Jesus for his life and ministry. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead has now been given to us. And so in this passage, Paul specifically names the Spirit seven times making sure that the attention of his readers doesn't get lost in this battle, right? The battle exists, the conflict is there, flesh is real, and he goes, but that's not the main thing I'm trying to get to. Pay attention to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit over and over again. He names the Spirit and describes a life of walking with, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. And notice when he talks about the flesh, he describes it as this kind of vague, impersonal, nebulous force. But that's not how he talks about the Spirit of God. He describes the Holy Spirit in engaging, relational, personal ways. Like this is a personal being who has actually thoughts and feelings and desires and plans. That's the language of walking with, keeping in step with a someone. So lots of us, for whatever reason, are afraid to call the Holy Spirit a person. It's not human, obviously, but the Bible never describes the Spirit as an it. Right? He has personality. So he's not the force. He's your friend. And we're invited to walk with him. And this language of keeping in step with, moving with, traveling, journeying, exploring, it's language of adventure, language of movement, 
language that we are invited on this wild ride, a life of freedom and risk and joy and meaning and sacrifice and surprise, and that the life that we long for is found through the person of the Holy Spirit. So that's the promise, or that's the offer. And so often, the problem is that we don't go with him. We decline the invitation. That we choose to carry on with life as usual, which is comfortable, but at the same time, lame and boring and predictable. And so that's what Paul's talking about in verse 17, where he says that the spirit and the flesh are in conflict with one another, one another, so that we don't do what we want. That's a confusing verse. And I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out what Paul's saying here. Here's what I think he's saying. We are, as humans, Christians nonetheless, as humans, Creatures of conflicted desire. Would you agree that there are things that we want that are incompatible with one another? Okay, so for me personally, I want to be physically fit and healthy, and I also want to eat pizza and drink beer all the time. <laughs> I genuinely want both of those things, right? And so there's this daily battle between two desires that are at conflict with each other. I want to be fully present with my kids when I'm at home. And I also want to scroll through Instagram. I want to be generous and selfless with my money and my things and my time. And I also want to use all of those things for my own comfort and gain. I want to be a passionate, devoted, spirit-empowered disciple of Jesus. And I also just want to give up. All those things are true, right? And so when we think about a life of freedom or the good life, a life of happiness and joy and meaning, whatever that thing is, we typically would assume it means it's the life I want. Well, if that's true, if the good life is the life I want, then I'm in a bad situation because the things I want are at odds with each other. And so Paul's tapping in to that reality that we have con contradicting desires at this kind of surface, day-to-day -day level, and at the deepest level as well. So what do we do with that? Well, Paul gives us this incredible gift. And he talks in the next chunk, verses 19 through 21, if we obey the desires of the flesh, if we pursue the things that this world tells us uh, are going to give us the good life of meaning, joy, happiness, contentment, he goes, that's where this goes, right? Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord. And most of us would look through that list and go, oh, there's a couple that sound like fun, <laughs> But most of all, yeah, that's not the life I want. And then he gets to this second list, known as the fruit of the Spirit. And he goes, a life submitted to the Spirit, as opposed to the flesh, 
leads to this. And we may look through that list and go, there's a couple I'm not sure if I want. (laughs) But on the whole, yeah, that's the life that we long for. Okay, here's the idea that helps me make sense of all this. What Paul's teaching us is that our deepest desires are not always our strongest desires. Our deepest desires are not always our strongest desires. So what are our strongest desires? The desires and passions, the feelings that we experience most urgently. Well, it's the desire for comfort, for pleasure, for control, for safety. It's the desire to have a self-governed life. And these are the desires that we feel most urgently or normally on a day-to-day basis. So when work is stressful, or when the kids are driving you crazy, or when somebody ticks you off or that you're just exhausted after a long week, what do you want? You want to regain control. You want to find a sense of pleasure or right being. Or maybe you want revenge. You just want to escape, right? Those are our strongest desires most, most often. But for a disciple of Jesus, what Paul is teaching us here, and this is huge, is that those aren't actually our deepest desires. Those are the things that we want, but those aren't the things we really want. For disciples of Jesus who have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, what we really want is Christ. To know him, to be with him, and to become like him. It's not always our strongest desire, but it is our deepest. It's not the desire we're born with, but what the Bible teaches it is that these are the desires that we're born again with. We have been given new hearts, a new set of desires and passions. Now, this might sound like an overly optimistic statement for me to make, that for those who belong to Jesus, your deepest desire is for him. But the truth is that we've received Christ through faith. Not because we had our lives or desires rightly ordered, but because he did and has invited us to step into an identification with him. And so in that moment of our conversion, whenever that was in your story, whether you were aware of of it or not, we talk a lot about this thing called justification that happens in that moment where you're made right with God, there's another thing that happens as well that's called regeneration. Whenever the Bible talks about being born again or being a new creation, it's something that happened in the moment that Jesus saved you. You were given a new identity, a new heart. You were made into a new creation, a new person. And with that comes a new set of deepest desires and passions. I'm not talking about sanctification yet, that process of becoming more like Jesus throughout your life, that's huge. I'm talking about something that happened upon your salvation. You were made new. And so 
what is now true for those that are in Jesus is that we, though we still contend with our flesh, and though we still experience strong desires for self-sufficiency and independence from God, at the deepest level, the thing that we really want most of all is Jesus. To know him and to become like him. And so, when we come to this passage that talks about these two paths or these two forces at work, flesh and spirit, it's incredibly helpful to begin to sort through and go, the good life isn't the life that I want. It's the life that I really want, which is found only in Jesus and the presence of his spirit. And as he gets to the fruit of the spirit, where we've been the last nine, nine weeks, he doesn't talk about these as acts, like he does the other list, the things that we do, but he talks about these things as fruit. What's the result of learning to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk with the Spirit, to say yes to the Spirit. What does that look like? He says, pretty soon, some of these characteristics are going to be formed in your life. These things will become more true of you. Now, there's kind of debate. I live in this weird little world of pastors and theologians and Bible scholars and seminarians and all that. So there's you know, little debates about how much we should read into the fact that Paul uses the metaphor of fruit, right? And people will talk about, well, he's not talking about a Christmas tree that you decorate and hang things on. He talks about a tree that bears fruit from the inside, right? And so some people would say, we don't have to try to do any of this stuff. We don't have to try to be loving or patient or kind or self-controlled. That's just like hanging decorations on a Christmas tree. He goes, all we need, other people would say, all we need to do is just kind of be a tree and let fruit grow. And I think there is something to it, and I think the truth is found somewhere in the middle, right? That on one hand, this is the evidence, the fruit, the, the appearance of what God is doing in our life. It becomes visible through these characteristics. But I don't think we're ever invited to this completely passive place of just letting God do stuff, right? He invites us to partner with him, to trust in him, to walk with him so that these things can be formed. But if there's one thing I would want to say about this whole list as we read through, Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Does that remind you of anybody? Does that sound like somebody we know? I would argue that if you were going to come up with nine words to describe the character of Jesus, I don't know if you could find nine better, better words. Paul's describing what Jesus is like and therefore what God is like. And so the fruit of the Spirit, once again, is the character of Christ becoming visible in the lives of his people. 
And for a follower of Jesus, that is what we really want. It's what our hearts really long for. Okay, so I haven't used the term self-control yet, but hopefully you see that's what we've been talking about the whole time. It's not just kind of some weird little word thrown on to the end of, or phrase, thrown on to the end of this list that kind of feels out of place. It actually makes sense of the entire passage. It's the ability to say no to what we want in order to say yes to what we really want. And for all of us, that's going to play out in really different ways, right? Like, Last night, I happened to be at a party with a bunch of my friends who found out I was speaking on self-control this morning, which was a recipe for disaster when they're like, hey, Pete, have another cupcake. Have another beer. (laughs) And I'm going, no, get behind me, Satan. I mean, Kip. Um, (laughs) So for some of us, it is something like food or drink which are things that we want, and they're not bad things, but there's things that we want even more than the false sense of comfort that that stuff can provide. So I would ask you, even this morning, to simply reflect and pay attention to what Jesus might be calling you to say no to so that you can say yes to him. Where in your life are there things that you want that you're pursuing instead of pursuing the things that you really want? And will you, by faith, step into that place of saying no to the flesh and yes to the spirit? So how do we get there? How do we get to that place of self-control? Some of us could probably say, yeah, that describes me. (laughs) And most of us would say, "Ah, that really doesn't. How do we see the Spirit grow this fruit in us? Well, in verse 24, we're told that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So again, he's not saying passion and desire is bad. He's saying you need better passions and desires the ones that the Spirit gives. And Paul is essentially echoing the very words of Jesus who says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those are Jesus' words. That's his invitation. Come after me, but you're going to have to die. The old self is going to have to die so that the new self can live. And Paul says, yeah, that's how this works to be crucified with Christ. I don't know many other men who enjoy the writings of Anne Voskamp, but I do. And let me share a couple of her words on the topic. Take up a cross. Be willing to suffer. These are the marks of a follower of Christ. Perhaps our greatest daily temptation is to be impatient, to refuse to suffer, 
Perhaps my greatest daily sin is to refuse to suffer, to refuse to take up the cross of Christ. Perhaps my greatest sin is refusing to wait on God's ways, but to want my own will done now. Patience is a surrendering to suffering, a willingness to wait, a carrying of the cross. That sounds like fun. (laughs) Well, that's what Paul's saying, right? If we are going to take hold of the life that Christ has called us to, the life we were made for and remade for, this is how it comes. Through a willingness to suffer. A willingness to say no to what we want, which is comfort and familiarity and control. To say no, and instead, this other fruit, to choose patience, forbearance, long-suffering. To endure unpleasant circumstances for a moment as we trust in Christ to be the one and only one who can fulfill the longings of our hearts. And so what's the point of embracing a life of inner conflict? Because it doesn't sound fun. Well, the point is that it's it's the only way to get what we really want. And nobody obviously has ever done this the way that Jesus has. The one human being who lived a perfectly spirit-filled life. The one human who walked with the spirit, kept in step with the spirit, who prayed to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. Not what I want, but what I really want, which is you and your kingdom and your life. Not what I want, but what you want. In Romans 8, we're told, if we are children, heirs with God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, we also may share in his glory. So there will be places in your life this week where you will be confronted with conflicting desires. And the spirit-empowered life is one that's able to pause in those moments and ask, what do I really want? Which is to say, what does Jesus want here? And my hope and my prayer is that as the spirit bears this fruit in us as a community, that we would indeed find ourselves living radically different lives than the world around us that those who are digging deeper within the reality of who we really are, the new people, the new community that God has given us or made us to be, that that would lead to these beautiful lives of love and joy and peace and everything else in a way that our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and those who don't know Christ would look at us and actually get to see him 
in us. That's my prayer. Will you join me? Father, we are so thankful that you have not just asked us to follow the leader when it comes to being disciples of Jesus, but you have actually placed your spirit in us. You have given us everything we need to live the life you've called us to, the very personal presence of your spirit. And so we're thankful. And I pray, God, for myself, for my brothers and sisters this morning, would you help us to pay attention to listen, to be mindful of your presence, of your voice, whether it's big life decisions or just moment-to-moment responses at work or home. Would you help us to say yes to the things that we really want and to trust you that your life, Lord Jesus, may become visible in us And that your fruit, Holy Spirit, would serve to feed this city and to renew this world. In Jesus' name we pray.